Good morning, everyone. It's uh, 8.04 Apple time, time to begin our grand rounds. Um, as, as you know, this is one of our special grand rounds, and this is the honorary Schwartz lecture uh, that will be uh, introduced by, by Dr. Mood in, in just a second. So uh, I'm glad everyone is here. For those of you in the, in the cloud, uh, welcome. Um, we can't see you, but we can hear you. Uh, and so make sure you're muted when you're online so that uh, we don't get uh, transmitted into the, to the auditorium. Um, for everyone, remember that you have a, a page uh, that you can fill out. And, and if you write your ABP uh, American Board Diplomat ID, we can actually give you MOC part two. I'm actually, I hear, I hear voices in the background. So that if, if, for those of you online, if you could mute your speakers, that would be great. Uh, and this actually will give you MOC part two. And for the pediatricians in the audience, that if you come here for two years and at least to 50 or 60% of the lectures, by that time, you, you will actually have met all your MOC part two requirements, which is really remarkable. For those of you who are interested in Mach 4, talk to us. We have a, also an amazing way of helping you with the Mach 4. I know that's a, uh, a contentious and sometimes difficult topic for the for the for the uh, all the physicians, but we have to do that. Um, so uh, today uh, the uh, speaker will be introduced by by Doug Mood. Uh, uh, Doug, you will notice a little bit in, in his accent. Uh, he's not from Colombia like I am. Uh, he's uh, you know from from the from the northern country of, uh, of Canada. That many people have been trying to move uh, uh, into Canada for the last four years, and I think hopefully they won't have to move anymore. That's that's the only political comment that I will make. Uh, uh, Doug is uh, an amazing individual who's done incredible things, uh, and uh, you know, the nice thing about it is that when you when you go down to radiology, uh, you will always find uh, somebody who's willing to go over and teach and 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 discuss the case with you. And he is an amazing clinician. Uh, he's one of the, those that can actually look at an X-ray and, and see the see the virus or the bacteria, which is always remarkable to me. Uh, so, Doug, if you can come up and introduce our speaker, please. Thank you very much. Good morning. Uh, my, my job is twofold. One is to introduce the speaker, but the other is to explain the, the nature of the Schwartz lecture. Um, it's in um, memory of Andrew Schwartz, who, worked, uh, who lived between 1950 and 1989. And I'm going to just read a few notes about Andy. I did not but at the time of his passing, um, Hugh Vine was who was the um, Chairman of Jefferson Radiology and Mike Ozanoff, who many of you know and recently just passed, uh, um, made a statement about Andy. They said his character embodied the epitome of what every pediatric radiologist strives for. Knowledgeable and skilled in children's disease, he was always an advocate for equitable patient care, which is more and more important today as a, as a site. His, his insistence on minimizing radiation exposure by performing the most appropriate procedure rather than what was merely requested was well known. He was constantly aware of the emotional and psychological needs of children and their parents, and he continually strived this to the residents and technical staff. His high sense of humor and calm demeanor helped all through, his through the frustrations we often encounter in trying to help others. His memory is honored by an annual lectureship in the Department of Pediatrics at Hartford Hospital, where pediatrics was, pediatric radiology was at that time and by all of us who think of him when we deal with our young patients. Jeff Himes also told me that Andy was larger than life and that he had a, a massive uh, cutout of Kevin McHale, who's six foot 10 in the reading room, and, and that you know, he was very approachable and um, 
you, you know, really, really modeled what pediatric radiologists should strive for. So this lecture is in memory of, of um, Andy Schwartz. Uh, going the wrong way. Oops. And so this just shows the, the last group of speakers that we've had. Uh, Beverly Newman, who is from Stanford, was here last year and the year before we had Suda and Appendi, who's from, uh, from uh, CHOP. So we've had quite a, quite a host of uh, phenomenal lectures. This, this year, however, we're delighted to have um, Cicero Silva speak to us, who brings his expertise to us from Yale University. Um, he is the chief of pediatrics there, and his initial medical and radiology training was in Brazil, but he, he's traveled widely, including uh, doing training in Melbourne, Australia, and sick kids in Toronto. So he has, he, he has a vast amount of experience, and uh, um, he, he is um, frequently speaking across the country and around, around the world, and he is an, um, a reviewer for the American Journal of Radiology and Pediatric Radiology and is, is heavily involved in research. So with his training, really, he can talk anywhere from head to toe. And, and I asked Cicero, okay, this is a group of um, uh, general pedi pediatricians and a more widespread um, group of people. So I tried to pick a topic with Cicero that was not so, so focused. And we um, decided to, that speaking on pediatric sports-related injuries would uh, um, you know, touch on a lot of things and, and I think be, appropriate for, for uh, um, a larger audience. Um, so I know that you're going to find this lecture engaging and very practical and useful. And please welcome Cicero Silva to uh, the stand. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very, very glad to be here. Second time I'm here. First time lecturing. Uh, very, very grateful. Can you hear me well at the back? Yes, great. So we're going to talk about imaging of pediatric sports-related injuries in the next 40 minutes or so. We're going to describe overuse MSK injury patterns that are unique to children and adolescents. We're going to discuss the image finding of this gamut of pediatric sports-related injuries. And then we're going to contrast the appearances of different injuries that affect each anatomical segment. We're going to give emphasis on overuse injuries, so not so much of your acute trauma, but overuse injuries. And we'll have quizzes. So this would be also for your uh, CME, I believe. Uh, we don't need to shout out loud, just stop and think a little bit. So what do we think is the weakest link in the MSK uh, system on children and adolescents? Is it the epiphysis? Is it the ligaments? Is it the growth plate or the bone? So that will be fundamental to the pattern of injuries we'll be seeing here. Ooh, another one. So which of the following is a feature that distinguishes Banner's disease from uh, capitellar osteochondritis? Oso sorry, osteochondritis dissecans. So Banner's disease from capitellar OCD. Is it that we have a better prognosis with uh, OCD? Is it that we have older patient age in OCD? Is it that we have anterolateral involvement in panners? Or is it fragmentation of the subchondral bone in panner? Hmm. I think I don't know the answer here. We'll, we'll see during the talk. 
And uh, this, I promise this is the last one. Which of the following is it true in regards to the treatment of anterior tibial stress fractures? They usually heal well with casting. They usually heal well with internal fixation. Or are they difficult to heal? And sometimes we even need excision and grafting there. Or the standard of care includes biopsy to exclude underlying malignancy. Which of those is true? So hopefully by the end of the talk, we'll have touched in all of those. So now we're gonna go from shoulder all the way down to the ankle and foot, time permitting, and hopefully time will permit. So we'll start with little league shoulder. Little league shoulder is, uh, oh, and by the way, let me get my mouse here. If you go down here, you'll be seeing that what kind of sports will give each of those injuries we'll be talking about. Little league shoulder, with throwers, right? We have rotational forces, and then we get repetitive microtrauma to the humeral physis, to the proximal growth plate. And that will lead into a stress injury of that growth plate, giving you a chronic Salter Harris 1 fracture. So the weakest link in the musculoskeletal children, in system in children, is actually the growth plate. Okay, until the bones are fully mature, that's your weakest link the growth plate. And that's where we'll be seeing most of the injuries here. On radiographs, sometimes you don't see anything. It's completely normal. But when you see, and often you see something, you'll be seeing physeal widening. You may see the mineralization, some fragmentation near that growth plate. You could see cystic changes, and you may see sclerosis too. If you're not sure, if that patient does have an abnormality or not, you can always ask for a contralateral uh, site for comparison. MRI. Can we dim the lights? So MRIs, do we need MRIs on little league shoulder? We, we don't. You do the diagnosis with x-rays, but if you do an MRI for whatever reason it is, uh, and your patient does have little league shoulder, what you might be seeing is, again, the physeal widening is there on the x-rays, will be there on the MRIs too. The physis itself, physis or growth plate, will have increased signal on T2, and sometimes you have periphyseal edema. And we'll be seeing as we go through the different, uh, all those different areas, that this pattern will be repeating itself, okay? Both for the x-rays and the MRIs. Now, little league elbow. Little league elbow will be a result of a valgus stress to the elbow that will give you tensile forces to the medial side and compression forces on the lateral side. Okay, so tensile forces on the medial side, compression forces on the lateral side. And with that, you have a host of different abnormalities that could happen. One of them would be traction apophysitis on the medial epicondyle. So again, tensile forces, chronic submaximal, to differentiate from an acute uh, injury that will actually avulse that epiphysis. So repetitive microavulsions at the interface between the bone and the cartilage, leading into a chronic stress reaction and a stress fracture of that growth plate, growth plate. So again, very similar to the little league uh, shoulder. And we'll be seeing this pattern repeating itself. Radiographs, similar to what we saw at the shoulder, right? So physeal widening, 
there. Irregularity of ossification, fragmentation, and sometimes sclerosis. If you get to the MRI, similar to what we're seeing in the shoulders. So physio widening, increased T2 signal, and yeah, that's what I had here. And also increased signal in the bone adjacent to that growth plate. So if you do have a force that is acute, that is uh, greater than that of submaximal force that will give the repetitive microtrauma, you will have an acute Salter-Harris type one fracture there. Now, if here we're dealing, medially we're dealing with tensile forces, again, laterally, we're dealing with compressive forces. So the same, uh, the same forces will lead medially, sorry, laterally, to OCD. So we can have damage to the subchondral bone, damage to the arterial cartilage, leading to displacement. Now, OCD in the capitellum will be in the anterolateral aspect of the capitellum. And this will be important to differentiate with Panner's disease that will be seen a little bit later. So anterior lateral, lateral aspect of the capitellum, and usually patients are older than 10, again, to differentiate with Panner's. On x-rays, early on in the disease, again, you don't see anything, it's normal, but often you'll be seeing just like OCD in the knee, you might be seeing that lucency, you can see sclerosis, and once that fragments, you can have flattening of that surface. And the fragments can displace and can get uh, trapped in the olecranon fossa. And again, it's along the anterior surface of the capitellum. MRI, similar to what you do on the knee, you might be doing to identify occult lesions, lesions that you are not seeing on x-rays, or, and or to classify stable versus unstable lesions. And again, similar to the knee, unstable lesions would be ones that you have fluid of the joint going in between that fragment and the parent bone. You may also use MRI to identify displaced fragments. That's your increased uh, fluid here, or the fluid in between the fragment and the parent bone, telling you that this is an unstable fragment there. So you have high tissue signal there. And if you get to see cysts, that's also a sign that this is a unstable lesion. Penner's disease, that's a diagnosis, that that's the differential diagnosis you'll be doing. This is an osteochondrosis of the capitellum or capitium for the purists. So osteochondrosis is a disorder of endochondral ossification. And the difference is that this is, has a much better prognosis than OCD. Patients are usually younger, and you see this lesion that goes all around the capitellum, as opposed to, uh, to anterolaterally. Again, this goes all around. Patients are younger than with OCD. Same way that you have OCD of the capitellum, you can also have OCD of the trochlea, although it's much uh, less common, OCD of the trochlea. Imaging findings are similar to OCD of the capitellum. 
Then we get to the olecranon. Here we have another ossification center, and you can also have traction apophysitis there. Findings, again, similar to what we saw in the shoulder. So you have widening of that growth plate. You can have irregularity of ossification there, fragmentation, sclerosis. But really, the most prominent finding is usually widening. MRI, again, I'm just repeating myself here. The findings are just the same. You have widening of the growth plate, increased CT signal in that growth plate, increased CT signal around that growth plate. And if you have an acute force, a larger force, you, can, you will have a Sauter-Harris type one fracture. Now, once the growth plates are fused, then the weakest, the weakest link around that joint will become the ligaments. And similar to what you have in adults, you can have, sorry, I mean tendons. And similar to what you have in adults, you can have tendinopathy. That's in adolescents, but that's often in uh, high level athletes. You don't see that as often as you see with adults. Tendinopathy, just like in adults, will also present with increased signal near the insertion at the bone. The radiographs will be normal, and that's your MRI finding. Again, tendon thickening and increased tissue signal near the insertion. You can have tendinopathy at the triceps. You can have at the flexor tendons. You can have at the extensor tendons. Another thing that you could injure at the elbow is the ulnar collateral ligament. That's the primary restraint against vagus forces. And with chronic overuse, you can have laxity or tear. You will need MRI to make the diagnosis. You may see complete disruption, disruption or indistinctness. And you can have edema nearby. Now, moving on to the wrist, and again, thinking about chronic injuries to the wrist, we think of gymnast wrist, right? And it's a, it's a bunch of injuries that one will be leading into another, okay? So we have chronic compressive impact in that growth plate that will lead into degenerative arthrosis. You start with an injury to the growth plate of the radius right? Radiographs early on, again, you might not see anything, but then you start seeing widening. Widening, haziness, irregularity, again, just similar to other joints. But what is different here is that this will lead into something else. So you may have premature closure of that growth plate. And with premature closure, that radius will become shorter than the owner. So that will lead into a positive owner variance meaning that ona is going further distally than that radius. That on its turn will lead into an ulnar impaction syndrome, and you can tear your triangular fibrocartilage. Okay? You can also end up uh, damaging the lunate, the trichretrum, and also the distal radius. You may tear the scaphal lunate or the lunate or tricheteral ligament. And once you start 
tearing those ligaments, fluid of the joint starts escaping the joint and you end up getting ganglion cysts. So again, one thing leading into another. Right, what about the spine? Spine, spondylolysis. Defect of the pars, we all probably know that. We wanna do an oblique uh, lumbar spine radiograph to see the spondylolysis. And you see the Scotty dog, right? Uh, do I have it there? Give me one second. There. The Scotty dog, right? The collar is where you have the defect on the pars. Let me go back a few. And remember that in children, it's almost always at L5, the defect. Less commonly L4 and much, much less commonly at other levels. And, uh, you know, children, every child will have abdominal pain. We don't worry much about it, right? Same way that all adults will have, had, uh, will have headaches. That's fine. But if children start complaining of back pain, children and adolescents, you really need to value that. You need, really need to investigate because you have about 50% incidence in children or adolescents with low back pain of spondylolysis. Radiographs on the AP, really, really hard to see what's going on. Uh, you may be seeing sclerosis in the contralateral pedicle if you have unilateral disease. And really, I, I always gaze at this x-ray, I'm like, I'm not seeing anything. I'm supposed to be seeing some sclerosis here. Now that I'm pointing to it, I'm like, yeah, maybe there's something there, but it, it's really tricky. What you really wanna see, and, and again, this is to show the contralateral defect, and that's the sclerosis that you see on the other side. You really, but what you really want to see for your spondylolysis is the oblique view. The lateral view will see a, an associated spondylolisthesis. If you are lucky, you may be seeing the lysis itself. But again, oftentimes you just don't see. Oblique is when again you see that Scotty neck. Now, sometimes the patient does have spondylolysis, but that's not what is causing the pain. So some people might advocate uh, the use of SPECT or MRI for further evaluation to tell if that's what the pain is coming from. If you have increased uh, contrast enhancement, if you have increased uptake on SPECT, you can say that this is where the pain is coming from. If you do not have increased uptake on, uh, on I'm sorry, SPECT from uh, from a bone scan, then you can say chances are that's not where the pain is coming from. You may also use MRI, for example, for uh, alternative diagnosis. Just like on this patient here, who actually had an uh, osteoblastoma that was causing the pain. Spondylolysis often will come also with spondylolisthesis. Spondylolisthesis, we're going to grade with a lateral radiograph at the lumbosacral junction. We're going to use the, a grading system that goes from one through five. So let's look at that. Grade one, when you have less than 25% displacement of that alignment. And by alignment, I mean we're looking at a line that goes through this area here. So the posterior aspect of the vertebral bodies. 
and you can see that there's a little bit of a step there. Up to 25%, that's a grade one. Up to 50%, grade two. 75% grade three. Oof. Up to 100% grade four. And more than 100%, that's very unfortunate, uh, grade five. Right now, coming into the hip. Hip, if we're thinking about chronic stress, we'll be talking about traction apophysitis. Again, similar to what we saw in the upper limbs. So again, similar explanations and uh, similar imaging appearances. But where do we look for? What are the apophyses that we have by the hips? And again, same, uh, same kind of imaging, but let's look at the different apophyses. You have the iliac crest, right? Where your oblique muscles insert, you can have traction apophysitis there. Anterior superior iliac spine, where the sartorius muscle inserts. Anterior inferior iliac spine, where the rectus femoris inserts. Ischial tuberosity with the uh, hamstrings. MRI, similar to what we saw in the upper limb. Just showing you different apophyses. Again, MRI, MRI findings, X-ray findings, just the same. The point here is where we're looking for those. Similar findings. Osteitis pubis, that, that's, that's a hard diagnosis because uh, asymptomatic people and people with osteitis pubis, they will have similar appearances on x-ray and also similar appearances on MRI, okay? So an overuse injury, people talk about unbalanced traction on the, that uh, pubic synthesis. And uh, findings are kind of similar to what we saw on other areas but it's so, so common that you look at that uh, pubic synthesis in someone who's asymptomatic and you see some cysts and you see some sclerosis. So it's really hard to make the diagnosis on uh, imaging wise. And on MRI, again, you may see increasing now in that area, but you also see on, on asymptomatic patients. So that's one, the diagnosis that is really hard to tell on imaging. Then moving on to the legs, we're gonna talk about thigh splints. So you have shin splints, you also have thigh splints. That's an entosopathy that we see medially at the insertion of the adductors. It's actually an acute event, but often it goes unrecognized, goes untreated and present to you as if it was a chronic event. Sometimes you don't see anything, but you may see periosteal reaction, which I think you see a little bit here, a little bit there. MRI, you'll be seeing some edema near the attachment site of the adductors and periosteal reaction will present itself as this very sharp area of increased signal on T2. And again, here, if you have associated edema in the marrow, which often you don't see. Now moving down to the knee, Osgood Schlatter's. So Osgood Schlatter's, I guess most people are familiar with that, the traction apophysitis at the site of insertion of the patellar tendon 
on the tibial tuberosity, leading into anterior knee pain. On radiographs, you'll be seeing that irregularity, fragmentation of the tibial uh, tuberosity. You can see some widening there. And uh, if you really squint and you start paying attention to your soft tissues, you may see thickening of that patellar tendon distally, and you may see signs of infrapatellar bursitis. If you use ultrasound, you'll be seeing uh, similar findings, but one thing that ultrasound would add is that there is increased vascularity at that area. MRI, are we going to do MRI for osgutulators? We're not, but again, if you happen to be doing MRI for some other reason, and the patient does have osgutulators, what you'll be seeing is increased T2 signal. Again, just like what, what we're seeing in other areas, right? Increased T2 signal at the tendon and around the tendon. Tibial tuberosity avulsion will be the acute counterpart to osgutulators, typically on acute jumping injuries. On radiographs, you see that displays fragments, and that's pretty much it. This is pretty obviously, clinically, it's pretty obviously, uh, even on imaging. Now, seen in Larsen Johansson, that's the counterpart of osgutulators, but rather than down here at the tibial tuberosity, you have it up here at the inferior pole of the patella. Imaging findings are, again, similar. Jumper's knee. So some people use jumper's knee as a synonym to sitting Larsen Johansson, but um, if you dig into it, into the nomenclature, sitting Larsen Johansson, you're going to use when you see this fragmentation. And jumper's knee is on a little bit older patients, skeletally mature adolescents, and it's really a tendinopathy. Okay, so now the issues with the tendon itself. On x-rays, you really don't see anything. And on MRI, you'll be seeing that increased T2 signal. So as you can see, the T2 will help you a lot uh, on MRI. T2 fat set will be pointing to you where the pathology is many, many times. Another thing you could have anteriorly by the knee, the other sleeve avulsion. That's an acute counterpart to jumper's knee. So again, skeletally mature patients and with acute jumping injuries, you have a fracture. And on x-rays, you'll be seeing that little dot there, but this is really just the tip of the iceberg, okay? So you'll be seeing, what you will not be seeing here is the adjacent cartilage. Okay, so you do not see the cartilage, you only see the little bony fragment that is displaced there. OCD, osteochondritis desiccans. The most, I guess, famous place for an OCD is that they need probably the most uh, common location for OCD. Again, we see at the capitellum, we can see at the trochea, we can see at the Taylor dome, but the most common places you will find OCDs is, at the, is about the knee. And you can see about the lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle, 
or about the medial aspect of the lateral femoral condyle. And what you do not see on x-rays unless that fragment is detached is if this is a stable lesion or not. And again, by stable lesion is a lesion where you have the fracture through the bone, but the overlying cartilage is intact. Whereas a unstable lesion, the overlying cartilage is also disrupted and that needs uh, surgical attention. And here it is. Here you can actually see the disruption of the cartilage and you can see fluid going in between that little fragment and the parent bone to tell you that this is unstable. You can see a host of other signs, but again, the one that is usually more robust is when you see that fluid going in between the fragment and the parent bone. And the reason you're gonna be doing MRI, first, if you're looking for occult lesions, but more often searching for displaced intraarticular fragments and that grading, uh, that kind of dichotomization into is this stable or is this unstable? Now we need to be aware that younger children will have some irregularity in the condyles and that's a normal variant. So how do you tell, is this normal or not? So the normal variant will be in younger children. It will be more posteriorly along the condyles, whereas the OCD will be along the weight bearing surface. If you look at the cartilage overlying that normal variant, the cartilage will be intact. Bipartite patella, that's a normal variant. We're aware of that, where you have two or more ossification centers that will not fuse, and that's all good, but that may become painful, okay, if you have chronic stress there. And when you image, you might be seeing marrow edema on MRI. And you may even start getting uh, degenerative changes along that interface. Okay, so going down from the knee into the leg, stress injuries. So we'll be seeing stress injuries in a few different areas in the body. Most common of them is the tibia, okay? Tibia, fibula, we already saw parts. We're gonna see a femur in a second, metatarsals, navicular, sesamoids. In the tibia, they're usually in the proximal third, although I'm showing you here one that is more distal, and they're often posterior medially. On radiographs, usually you do not see anything early on. When you do see anything, you start seeing periosteal reaction and sometimes cortical thickening. If you're really, really unlucky, you could have cortical fractures there. Now on MRI, we do have a classification uh, system for that. We're going to go through different gradings and that has uh, implications on treatment. MRI, we're gonna evaluate for differential diagnosis, for example, of osteoid osteoma, but also we're gonna grade the injury. And how does that grading go about? 
a grade one stress injury, you'll be seeing a high teacher signal by the periosteum. And that's all you see. Then, if in addition to that, you also have increased signal in the marrow <coughs> on T2, that's a grade two. If in addition to that, you have low signal on T1, that's a grade three. And if in addition to that, you have an abnormal cortex, which may be in the form of a fracture or a broader signal abnormality, that's a grade four. Now you may not need to use MRI. Oh, sorry, we'll get to that in a second. Grades one through three, we call stress response or stress reaction. And once you see that, uh, that cortical abnormality, we call that a stress fracture, okay? But you may not need to use MRI if on the x-rays you're already seeing a periosteal reaction. Because if that's the case, that's the equivalent of a grade four injury on MRI, okay? So if you see periosteal reaction on your x-rays, you do not need MRI. That usually correlates with a grade four lesion. So other sites for stress injury, fibula, often along the distal third of the fibula. And remember that classification scheme that we use was for the tibia. Some people will apply to fibula as well, but it's uh, meant to be used on the tibia. Stress injuries in the femur, look at the femoral neck medially, okay? If you really squint, I'm sorry, this is a JPEG on a PowerPoint through a projector, you will not be seeing anything. But trust me, when you're looking on the diagnostic workstation, you would be seeing a little line here, okay? Little lucent line there. All right, anterior tibial stress fracture. These are uncommon. They are seen, as the name implies, anteriorly. So you have your tibia here and you see anteriorly. And what is uh, interesting about them or sad about them is that they are difficult to heal. And often you need a surgical excision and bone grafting to fill that space. You wouldn't think you're like, oh yeah, that's just a little you know, stress fracture there, but um, no, they are really difficult to heal. Okay. You'll be seeing this little lucent line here anteriorly. You can have uh, hypertrophy of the surrounding cortex. And if you do MRI, in addition to that, you see this increased signal on T2 on the marrow and also on the cortex. Shin splints, medial tibial stress syndrome. That's an entosopathy. And uh, when you compare it to stress fractures, the difference on imaging is that this is a longer segment as compared to stress fractures. You'll be seeing the periosteum. Oops, make sure I'm good. So you'll be seeing that periosteal abnormality there but the marrow is completely normal because again, this happens at the, at the site of insertion. So enthesopathy as opposed to a primarily bone issue. Now moving into the ankle and the foot. 
starting with the tails, OCD, osteochondral lesions. So we saw OCDs of the, by the knee, right? Distal femur, we saw capitellum, we saw trochea. Another bone that, you should, that we should be looking for OCD is the talus and the talar dome. You can have them laterally, you can have them medially. And they're often associated with uh, ankle sprains, okay? That's the most typical context, but you can also have with repetitive microtrauma. Again, we're going to be looking for laterally. We're going to be looking for medially. On MRI, similar to what we're seeing OCDs in other areas, you may see cysts when this is chronic, when this is uh, unstable. You may see that increased signal, again, telling you that this is unstable. If you see it in between the fragment and the parent bone. Then moving into the, into the tarsals, and we have tarsal coalitions. Tarsal coalitions, they are congenital lesions, but they often become symptomatic only in early adolescence, when, starts, uh, when child starts into sports. And it's a failure of bone segmentation, leading into a syndesmosis. That syndesmosis can be osseous or bony, or it could be cartilaginous or fibrous. The thing is that this will often lead into flat foot and also will predispose to ankle sprains and also distal fractures. So a few different sites for coalitions. One that is very common, but it's hard to diagnose with x-rays is between the talus and the calcaneal bone, okay? Talo-calcaneal coalition. We'll be looking for indirect signs of that coalition. The coalition itself, it's very difficult to see on x-rays. If you do an axial view of the calcaneum, sometimes you see that, but it's usually difficult to see. We're looking for indirect signs. So on a lateral view, we see a C sign, which is a continuity of the talus and the sustentaculum. So how is this different from normals? So let's have a look. This is a normal, and this is with the C sign the difference. So that space also between the talus and the calcaneum, this space here gets reduced. And you can actually trace a line here that is continuous. That's your C sign. We may also see as you change the biomechanics, you start getting uh, osteophytes, giving you what is called the Taylor big sign. I'm fighting with the mouse here. Can you see the Taylor Beak? <laughs> oh, here we go. So that's your little osteophyte here along the superior anterior margin of the talus and sometimes at the navicular bone too, okay? So again, let's compare this against a normal or uh, a bone that does not have coalition. So this is your normal and that's with the Taylor Beak, okay? So again, osteophytes along the talus and along the navicular, right? Another site for coalition between the calcaneum, oops, and the navicular, your calcaneo-navicular coalition. This one, you will be seen with x-rays. And for that, you wanna do an oblique view. 
okay, oblique view of the foot, and you might be seeing an osseous bar or a non-osseous bar, but again, narrowing of that interval. So again, let's compare against a normal. So this is with the coalition. This is without coalition. So this is a normal bone or the normal foot. Here we have our navicular bone. Here we have our calcaneum. And look at that space versus with the coalition. And again, you could have uh, signs on the lateral view. We see the anteater sign. So you look at that calcaneal bone and it starts projecting way too anterior up here. So again, let's contrast with normal. So this is with coalition, this is normal. Okay, so that's your anterior most part of the calcaneum here, anterior superior. That's with the, with the coalition, your anteater sign. And uh, CT is gonna show you uh, more thoroughly that coalition here you have an osseous continuation. When it is non-osseous, you might also see sclerosis and cysts. Like here, that's a non-osseous, either fibrous or cartilaginous. And on MRI, on top of that, you see the abnormal signal on the adjacent bone, uh, bone surfaces. Now, further down into the foot, accessory navicular. Accessory navicular, it's fine, it's okay. Many good people have accessory navicular. I have accessory navicular, it's, it's really fine. It's uh, a normal variant, but uh, it can lead to pain, okay? Uh, and you have three types here, uh, which are not ordered here, but this would be a type one, that's a type two, that's a type three. So you can see that uh, you have this ossicle here that can give you a uh, synchondrosis there, or can be completely fused. And what happens is that you have the posterior tibial tendon coming here, and it could lead you into something similar to a traction apophysitis. Okay, this will act as, as an apophysis and you can have uh, uh, symptoms due to traction in that area. On MRI, again, just like what we saw in other areas of the body. Severus disease. That's another one that can be tricky because I will not be able to tell, yes, this patient has Severus disease. I might be able to tell, no, this patient does not have Severus disease. And, and why is that? So let's look into this. Severus disease is a traction apophysitis slash osteochondrosis, so we're not sure. But it involves the calcaneal tuberosity, this area here, okay? And you have the Achilles tendon inserting up here. And you have the plantar fascia inserting down there. And that could lead with, the, with excessive traction that could lead into pain. And what do we see on image? You'll be seeing sclerosis and you'll be seeing fragmentation of that apophysis. Sclerosis, fragmentation, uh, but you also see that in asymptomatic people, okay? 
So quite often, actually, most patients, I think, will have a calcaneal apophysis that is indeed sclerotic, that is indeed uh, fragmented. So I just don't know why I look at that. Yeah, could be. It's like Osgochulotters is the same. You really need to have uh, clinical input there. On the other hand, if I do not see sclerosis, if I do not see fragmentation, then I can say, no, this is not Severus disease. MRI, very similar. Again, very similar to what we're seeing in other areas. Achilles tendonitis. Chances are we are not going to do imaging because this is straightforward clinically. But if you're imaging a patient who happens to have Achilles tendonitis, you'll be seeing thickening and increased signal in that Achilles tendon. We're two or three more minutes and we're done. We're at the very end, ankle impingement syndrome. We have anterior, we have posterior impingement. Anterior impingement is usually ballet dancers. <laughs> See the little osteophyte here? So when you have extreme dorsiflexion, you start creating those, that trauma between the anterior part of the tibia and the talus. And you have osteophytes. We have anterolateral impingement. When you have recurrent sprains, and that can lead into thickening of the anterior lateral ankle capsule. Posterior impeachment is the ostrigonal syndrome. Again, it's okay to have an ostrigonal. That's a normal variant. It's the zone accessory ossification center from uh, accessory from the talus, but with chronic infection, you can cause pain. On x-rays, similar to what we're seeing on other areas of the body, you have the irregular margins, you may have cysts, you may have sclerosis, MRI, that plus edema. And you may have fluid getting into there. Isolin disease, that's a traction apophysitis in the fifth uh, metatarsis. And again, similar imaging findings. And again, similar MRI findings. Navicular stress injury, this is usually uh, pretty nasty. They are prone to non-union. Colors disease, that's another one that I won't be able to tell if the patient does have or not. This is really mostly uh, clinical because we're seeing, uh, this is an osteochondrosis of the navicular, but we'll be seeing uh, sclerosis, we'll be seeing fragmentation. But again, we also see in asymptomatic people. So we need to know, is there pain here? MRI will be seeing this increased rim of T2, just like we saw on Penner's disease. And just like we saw on Penner's, uh, this often will have a good prognosis. Freiberg, we see at the metatarsal heads, second or third metatarsal heads, flattening, sclerosis there, sometimes fragmentation. All right, we've gone through all of that. Let's give, a, give the answer to those questions we saw at the beginning. What is the weakest link here? What do you guys think? The growth plate, yes. So difference between Penners and Capitellar OCD. Mm. OCD, more than 10 years old, penners less than 10 years old. 
Okay, prognosis is much better on banners, actually. Banners involves the whole bone, right? And anterolateral is for OCD. So what about anterior tibial stress fracture? See, they're difficult to heal. All right, so hopefully we've gone through all of that. Thanks for bearing with me. And uh, I'll leave, uh, I guess you have access to the, to the PowerPoint. These are papers where I got the bulk of this lecture. You can uh, delve more into those papers. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Cicero. I think we might have time for one question. Go ahead, Doug. I have two parts. First part is, is that I've heard a number of talks on spondylolisis, spondylolysis, and I get a very mixed feeling whether or not to do an oblique view or not. Some people say you definitely don't need one. Other people say you need it. I got the impression you thought the oblique view was good. I guess, yes. Maybe if you talk to someone who's more experienced than I, like Doug, he will say, oh, you don't need that because he's well experienced. But it's much easier to see on an oblique view. Uh, someone at my level of experience, you may or may not see on the lateral view. The spondylolisthesis, you will be seen on the lateral, but the spondylolysis, it, you may or may not. So as a general pediatrician who is very naive at looking at them and relying totally on the radiologist, when I order it, what should I order? Uh, I probably, if you're looking for a spondylolysis, I would do obliques. Okay. Chances are we're also going to do AP and lateral because, again, we're looking for differential diagnosis there. But I would add obliques if you're looking for, uh, specifically, if you're looking for spondylolysis. The, the second question is, is when do you decide you need um, contrast when you're looking at, typically, if I'm concerned about the shoulder and I think the elbow, number of things, you always had contrast. Do you think that's something you need to use all the time? For MRIs. Uh, MRIs, it depends on the setting, it depends on the group. Many groups will be more, have more use of contrast, others will have less use. So I guess this is uh, something, again, you need to touch bases with your group, with Doug, with uh, his group, what they are used to. But uh, it really varies a lot. Uh, I see a lot of use, but it really varies a lot. Yes, uh, thank you for the talk. Um, as pediatricians, we see a lot of musculoskeletal injuries, and we have to decide when or not to order an x-ray. Um, you know, we always think about cost or radiation exposure or ordering a test with low yield or also um, uh, just uh, if it's worthwhile or not. So my question for you is two things. When do we over, when are we ordering too many x-rays at what? And two, or what are some of the things we're missing in our history and physical when we're not getting enough x-rays? So two questions, overuse and underuse for us ordering. So I, I find that often we can get into a good balance the more we talk with each other before we order the test. So if it's something straightforward that you're like, yes, I need to order an x-ray here, or no, I don't need to order, great, we, uh, you make the decision. Once you get into should I order an x-ray and what view should I order, we're always one phone call away. Uh, talk with us and chances are we're gonna improve uh, that kind of over and under use. So, meaning have the radiologist as a consultant. It's, it's hard to give one answer that will cover everything, but I guess if you have us as a consultant, that probably will improve in, in other areas too, not just x-ray CTs, ultrasounds, MRIs, what imaging modality am I going to order, 
This is with or without oral contrast, with or without IV contrast. The more you talk with us, chances are the more your patient will be served. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was fantastic. By the way,